Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville. Local Pride, Global Technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about higher education with two uh, very distinguished guests that we have with us here in the studio. Joining us are Indiana State University President Daniel Bradley and DePaul University President Brian Casey. You can join us on the program by phoning 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join the discussion by going to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And uh, presidents, welcome. Thank Two you. presidents at once. I think we're going to have to go with first names. If we say Mr. President, we're, right. we're, nobody's going to know who to, how to answer. That's right. right. Well, I hope you hope you won't be offended by that. No. Uh, all right. Uh, we... Uh, we uh, this is a first for us. We've had presidents mm-hmm. of Indiana University, and we should actually – I should probably mention uh, the passing of Miles Brand. Mm-hmm. Miles uh, was on our program. Mm-hmm. He did uh, – uh, he was on, I think, more than once. He would always do a show where we didn't take call-ins. He was more comfortable. I think a lot of the uh, obituaries and a lot of the things that have been written about Miles talk about how he was sort of a shy man and mm-hmm. truly mm-hmm. was. Um, who did a lot of uh, really good things for Indiana University. With Peg on the show as well. Yeah, yeah, his wife Peg. So we uh, give our condolences to the Brand family. But we've never had a president from Indiana State or from DePaul on the program. Wow. So for the change. Yeah. So we're we're happy to have you. Now, uh, President Bradley, you uh, told me before the show you started July 31st, 2008. So you've been here for just a little bit longer than a year. Would you give us just sort of a nutshell description of of your background, your bio? Sure. I uh, started – out my academic career as a chemist uh, at uh, Montana Tech, which is a part of the University of Montana. Uh, did that for a few years and then uh, became a petroleum engineer and taught petroleum engineering for most of my academic career. Went through the, the normal stages of uh, department chair and, and dean and vice chancellor for academic affairs. And then eight Nine years ago now, I left uh, Montana and, and became president at Fairmont State University in West Virginia, and then just over a year ago came to Indiana State. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome. We're glad to have you here in the Hoosier State. Thank you. And uh, President Casey, I know that you've spent some time in Indiana earlier. Yeah, this right? is my second go-around. Mm-hmm. I was an undergraduate at uh, Notre Dame in the a long time ago. How we'll leave it at that no, in the early '80s. But um, whereas uh, Dan had. I'd like to think a, a, a classic route to the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a much more tawdry travel to it. Um, I was a I was a, a lawyer on Wall Street for uh, several years before I went back and uh, well, it doesn't get much more tawdry than that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, I'm still trying to recover from that. No, I, I, I in a dramatic move, mm-hmm. I quit that and went up and got a doctorate in history and was pursuing that. Route and then suddenly, in a very early turn of my career, was was called into what was supposed to be a one-year position helping the administration out at Brown University, where I was at the time. Just I was promised it was just be a one-year thing, and it's been multiple years later. I was at Brown for a while, and then right before I came to DePaul, I was a dean for academic affairs at Harvard University. So mm-hmm. I, I arrived about a year ago back in Indiana. Well, we're glad to have you back Thank as you. well. Well, I, I thought I'd start the program with uh, just asking for some priorities from each one of you. And, and let's start with Dan, if I may, priorities at Indiana State. Well, I think our, our biggest priority is, is to help our students be more successful. You know, there's been a lot in the press about success rates in, in college, particularly in, in public universities. And so that, that's definitely our, our biggest priority going forward. We're in the midst of a strategic planning process right now that uh, will finish up here in the next month that has basically six prongs to it, but, 
but student success both in getting into college and then staying to completion are, is going to be the major thrust of what we do. Mm-hmm. So getting in and staying through completion is how you define success. I, I mean, it's really a fairly reasonable uh, debate that people have, you know, is just graduating success or is then gainful employment? Does that equal success? Um, I, I think that's that's a that's a good question. I, you know, and, and some people would say uh, on the al- alternative side to that is the students decide whether they're successful. So if they stay a year and decide that's all they want and, and they've decided that that's success, who are we to argue? I think operationally we're going to define it as graduate. Thank you. All right. And uh, Brian? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think every president has to come up and say we're in a strategic planning process as well. <laughs> but um, – we are um, actually looking at our own core mission. It's interesting to, you know, essentially at its core, DePaul University is a, is a kind of a classic liberal arts college. We're a university because we have a school of music that uh, very noble and uh, old. It's celebrating its 125th anniversary this weekend coming up. But um, in this day and age, to explain to a public what it is, what a private liberal arts college is and what it does and um, – in, in some ways, we don't have an instrumentalist sort of explanation for what we do because in some ways you say, you know, taking a lot of courses in which you read Macbeth um, might not lead you to a job at Goldman Sachs but is intrinsically valuable. So in some ways, uh, you know, we have a very expensive product and we are telling students that we're going to transform them through kind of a classic liberal arts curriculum. So explaining in this world and particularly in these financial times what exactly it is that our school does at a scale that we do it at is you know it's it's, it's a challenge on the admissions front. It's a challenge on the um, financing front. And you know to add to it, and I'm sure Dan will agree with me on this. All institutions right now are facing considerable uh, financial pressures as um, all our all our sort of standard uh, revenue sources uh, got hit very very hard. And both of us um, took a a bit of a hit from the state. In its uh, support of its in-state students, we 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 um we really had a, a hard go of that this summer. I'm sure you did as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting that both your universities are different kinds of schools. I mean, a private university in Greencastle and a public university in Terre Haute. You're not very far apart, Mm-mm. but uh, I'm sure that that you're competing for some of the same students. I would assume, but also there are different mm-hmm. kinds of students that are going to choose DePaul over Indiana State and vice versa. Right. But I, I wanted to to, to uh, to follow up with you, um, Brian, because I, I have, as I told both of you, I've been talking to people on both your campuses. So I know that, that you've been talking a great deal about um, intellectual life and the idea of uh, trying to sort of find the balance between you know, some common experiences for students, trying mm-hmm. to build places where, the, where people – where the students learn from each other and don't just learn in the classroom. Right. How, how's, that, uh, how's that working? What, can you sort of explain a little bit more about that goal? Um, it's, it's funny. The very first speech I gave to the whole faculty is I said that you know, institutions rise and fall on the strength of their intellectual life, the depth and the appeal of uh, what happens intellectually on a campus. And that's, that's very hard to define. I mean it, uh, one way you measure it is you know, what happens in the classroom? What's your curriculum like? But, um, but more importantly, what's your ethos? Is it a place that supports and um, – supports intellectual play and supports intellectual discovery and how do you measure that? How do you do that? What I had grown concerned and concerned with over the years and this picks up something that I started with is that uh, DePauw was starting to model itself on you know, Indiana State and IU and starting mm-hmm. to build in um, kind of quasi-pre-professional programs. We, had, we have management fellows. We have media fellows. We have these movements toward a kind of a pre-professional posture and I was worried, are we, are we moving away from that kind of classic liberal arts, um, uh, almost indefensible, you know, mom and dad, I'm taking another course on Kafka sort of <laughs> positioning, <laughs> uh, you know. But how do, we, uh, how do we promote the sense of discovery and exploration on the campus, both in the, in the classroom and outside of it? Mm-hmm. So um, our faculty uh, has had a long, hard year of looking at intellectual life, trying to define it. And we had a very, very interesting meeting on Monday in which the, the faculty 
uh, just voted after a, a very heated and quite emotional discussion, a new vision for the institution. So uh, we'll, we'll hear more about that. I, yes, you will. I think I talked to my source before that meeting. Maybe wow. I should have talked to him afterwards. Who are your sources? <laughs> no, I, can't, I, I can't divulge those, of okay. course. Um, Dan, uh, Indiana State has uh, a little bit different mission, I guess, uh, although – a lot of it sounds the same. I mean, any university is going to to want to sort of enhance the the uh, experience of its students right. by more than just going into a classroom. So, what kinds of things are you doing at ISU? For well, I think that that's one of the the ways we think that we can enhance student success is that there's really a a lack of engagement with the institution that goes on, particularly with freshmen, and so that's a a, a large part of our effort. We've had a, a long-term commitment to community engagement and, and experiential learning. But we're trying to take go beyond that and, and really get our, our students involved uh, to um, basically, uh, you know, the, the kids who want to go home every weekend, hmm. uh, those are the ones we're really trying to work on to, to get them so that they're 24-hour-a-day Indiana State students. Um, and, and that's a that's a I think it's a bigger challenge at a at a public institution uh, than it is say at, at many liberal arts colleges where you know you're isolated you're relatively small uh, and the students have a a better or a yeah they've had a better experience with education in the past and so they're more dedicated to to that intellectual – the intellectual goals associated with, with school. Mm-hmm. But engagement is the, 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 uh, the mantra. Ownership is. really is that – Yeah, I, I think we want, we want the employees to have ownership feel, – feel a need to interfere with the students' lives outside <laughs> of the classroom and uh-huh. be interested in the students' lives out of the classroom. We want our students to be interested in each other's lives outside of the classroom. Um, to, so that they become part of the community. Uh, you know, we, we, we have too many students who have not made the intellectual commitment to getting a degree, to being, being students. Um, you know, in the simplest sense, they might value their part-time job at McDonald's mm-hmm. more than they value their relationship with the university. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's easy for people to get into that mode, and, and it's not... But that's our task is to, to break people out of that so that they remember the part-time job is to help them stay in mm-hmm. school, uh, not the other way around. Okay. Well, Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted, I wondered what role does research play in each of your universities? Well, I think it, it depends on the, on the program. I mean all of our faculty are required both by, by administrative requirements and by faculty governance rules to be involved in research. Uh, we do a modest amount. It varies dramatic in terms of funded research. We do a modest amount, and it, but it varies dramatically from program to program. In our biology department, we have PhD programs, and so the the uh, research requirements there would be different than say in the uh, in another department that only has baccalaureate programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question to ask of the liberal arts colleges right mm-hmm. now because you know. I, I think it's a completely false or dated notion that the f- faculty at liberal arts colleges are not engaged in research, and that they're you know they're the they're the they're all some variation of Mr. Chips. You know they're they're, they're just the teachers, and 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 our, our faculty are, are unbelievably committed to teaching. But the way that all faculties now are developed, scholars come out. You know you know we're hiring our faculty from leading research universities. They get their doctorates. So they're, they're trained as researchers and they are fully invested in the notion that their research informs their teaching. Um, you know, and those are always hard to quantify. So institutionally, we, we certainly have a, a much, much smaller footprint in federally funded research. Um, we'll have modest NSF financing, modest you know, de- um, you know, Department of Energy financing. Um, but most of our research is, you know, it's, it's of a smaller scale. A lot of it's uh, self-funded. The institution mm-hmm. supports uh, faculty development. But that that particular tension 
uh, at a liberal arts college about, you know, what commitment to research and how does this redound to the students in the classroom ends up being – it's a fairly emotional topic mm-hmm. on our campus and you hear a lot of alums come back and they – they get concerned. You know, they, they, they can feel the interest of the faculty in research and they're, they're concerned because they think, oh, that's pulling them away from the classroom and I remember the great teachers I had and is, is the culture somehow shifted in ways that violates their memories? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's – I think that's the power of nostalgia in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, very powerful force on a campus. But, um, you know, it's just a, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a perpetual debate. On our our campus, and I um, and I don't think we're going to resolve it in the next say forty five minutes here. But, <laughs> but it's an interesting point to bring up. You did. You actually did your dissertation on nostalgia. I, I sure did. I, I, I you know the yeah. campus is always. I, I my my theory is is that it's on a campus for a whole uh, series of cultural reasons. They there's always an an imagined or wished for past that <laughs> that everyone clings to. Um, that actually, because it is not real, it can never be fully refuted. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, so you have to you have to you have to manage it, and actually, quite frankly, you can you can um, use it as well. It's 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 also it's a doorway back for your alums to come back. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you you we're in the nostalgia business in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I think about you know when we we're talking about. Uh, you know, the experience on a campus and trying to get your students engaged at Indiana State. I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm turned into one of those old guys, I guess, who thinks, we well, all if I, yeah, if I, if I had known now what the opportunities were that were available to me when I was an undergraduate at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, mm. I would have probably done some things differently than I did. You know, I think I turned out okay, but wow, it would have been so much fun to participate in all these things that were going on around me. Instead, I was, you know, off drinking beer at the bar or something. Which was also fun. Yeah, it was fun. Well, I mean, I'm nostalgic about that. There you go. Well, do you you regret um, intellectual opportunities that you passed up or do you regret? Yeah, I think I do. I think I definitely regret some intellectual opportunities I passed up. You know, like I I remember (laughs) – since we're chatting, I remember a a fine arts class that I wish I would have been more engaged in Mm. instead of just taking a pass-fail and going when I felt like it. You know, it's interesting. We had um, uh, admitted students weekend for – you know, once their students were admitted, we were trying to convince them to come to DePaul. And we had a series of conversations with parents and we talked about this, you know, the – these wonderful courses you can take. Inevitably, the parents come up and say, "Oh my, you know, I'm 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 47. I really want to come back and take mm-hmm. film studies, or I, you know, I really wish I'd take another Shakespeare course." And you know, the, then they look at their 17 year old sitting next to them, who's all trying to pretend their parents aren't sitting next to them. Yeah, right. And right. you know, the, and the kids are like, "Don't talk about Shakespeare anymore, Mom. Okay, just don't do that." So. <laughs> we do it all wrong. We should all have to work for 25 years and then get to go to college as a reward. Well, um, I can you – know, hey. Dan and I have never left. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, I, I do want to go back to Indiana State's you – know, as a public institution, you know, there, there's, there are a lot of pressures on you, I would think, from the state in terms of – you were talking about funding before. Right. And there are a lot of Hoosiers who believe that the, you know, the sort of the, uh, um, the mission of the university should be get my kid to go there train them to do something, set them off in, in the world so that they can actually have a job and make money. And the universities are so much larger than that. So how, you know, how do you sort of balance that notion that you should be turning out graduates who go straight to work as opposed to this idea of you know, intellectual uh, pursuit while people are on a campus? Well, I, I think you know, we, we offer a very wide array of degree programs. And, and some of them have a fairly extensive professional uh, preparation component. And, and that's basically the, the, the trade-off. We've got this professional uh, preparation component. We've got a general studies component. And, you know, that's the, the, the tug of war that goes on the campuses is how much is enough and goes on actually within the, the accreditation groups as well. And within the family. In, within the family, that's mm-hmm. right. I mean, there are, as, as Brian was saying before we started, there are plenty of people with, with liberal arts educations who have taken up leadership roles in very technical companies mm-hmm. um, doing basically anything. Um, what we give them in many ways is what gets people in the door. And, you know, five years later, 
uh, they better be able to bring more to the table than those, mm-hmm. those uh, initial skills that we gave them. Mm-hmm. So that's what, in many measures, that's what the general ed, the general studies program has to be the underpinning is because that's what can help you uh, survive the, the last 25 right. years or 30 mm-hmm. years of your career. Well, what, are you, what are you finding are the disciplines that young students are sort of um, gravitating toward today and how has that changed over time? I think, you know, when I started college in the, in the late 60s, uh, you know, history and political science and psychology and English mm-hmm. probably dominated mm-hmm. almost every institution, public or private. Um, you know, business, education, criminal, criminology um, are much more likely to be the, the dominant programs on a public uh, comprehensive institution these days. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we see. I mean, we have a number of students in liberal arts programs, but far more in, in professional programs. Nursing is, is a big program. So mm-hmm. students and their parents, in, in are, many of them, are looking for professional preparation at the bachelor's degree level. Mm-hmm. How about at DePaul? Do you find any dif- different areas that people are very interested in? Well, I think DePaul experienced um, the same phenomenon that you saw at a lot of our peer institutions, which was at first there was a significant um, movement toward the social sciences, quite particularly into um, economics. And our, our economics program is both economics and management, but um, most economics departments actually aren't business programs. It's a rather, rather different thing mm-hmm. to study economics, but there was, a, there was right. a significant flight toward economics. What we're also seeing is a, is a, is a strong shift toward the biological sciences um, with our students. You know, and and I, I think driven... I think originally by an interest in pre-medical positioning, but also, I mean, the biology is exploding. Biology is changing. What I studied as an undergraduate biology actually isn't biology anymore. So, but you mm-hmm. you see a significant move toward those fields, and you know, and I think at DePaul and a lot of other places, you can you can feel the humanities trying to offer some sort of defense of their relevance. And there's been a lot of um, articles recently about, you know, art, what, what relevance to humanities. And um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, one of DePaul's responsibilities is actually is to offer a, a, a firm defense of the humanities as part of the mix. So mm-hmm. we'll see where this keeps going. Right. I should mention I quoted uh, Miles Brand in an editorial I did. When he left Indiana University, he said he felt like the health sciences would be mm-hmm. to the 21st century what the physical sciences were uh, right after uh, World War II and in the latter part of the 20th century. I'm glad you mentioned that because that came to mind when, when you were speaking. So, well, And, you know, there's huge demand in, in the healthcare areas for employees as well. And so I think that's in some ways driving driving that interest in the biological sciences mm-hmm. in terms of career preparation because most of those programs are – or many of them are at the graduate level. Mm-hmm. At least in, in our in our institution. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we'll take our uh, our midway break now. We're starting to get emails come in and I would imagine that if I introduce you guys again because I've been kind of remiss in doing that, <laughs> uh, we might get some phone calls too. But we're talking with Indiana State University President Daniel Bradley and DePaul University President Brian Casey. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. Listening to Noon Edition on member supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, Smithville Telephone Information at Smithville.net, and from Mother Bear's Pizza at MotherBearsPizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. 
They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 745. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're talking about higher education with uh, two guests in the studio, two very distinguished guests, Indiana State University President Daniel Bradley and DePaul University President Brian Casey. You can join us on the show by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. That's if you're in Greencastle or Terre Haute. And you can also <laughs> join the discussion on our website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. We've had a couple of emails that have come in, and this first one is a two-parter, so I think I'm going to go ahead and break it up. Um, It begins, if you are about to start college, what are the majors that would help you with job placement after graduation? Interesting follow-up on our recent conversation here. Well, I I think that's pretty pretty broad statement. I think the the first thing a person has to do is do some interest inventory uh, analysis as to mm-hmm. what what kind of a job do, does a person want you know indoors outdoors quantitative qualitative mm-hmm. uh, high communications uh, low communications needs about um, high pay low pay high pay <laughs> well high pay low pay uh, do you want to live in Terre Haute or do you want to live in Chicago mm-hmm. uh, those are the kinds of things that people have to look at if they want to go into this in a in a in a in a search mode of trying to find out what kind of a career they want. Um, so just look at where the jobs are today is is probably a, a big mistake because jobs shift. Um, and so you, you really need to make an effort to decide what you would like to do. And if that doesn't work out, then try something else. Is, I think that's my recommendation. I want to echo um, especially your last point. Um, Mm. Jobs shift so much. I mean, when I was I graduated from Notre Dame in 1985, and and, and computer science was just emerging. I, I, you, mm-hmm. Your ability to predict jobs over the long term is so so um, irregular and, and going to be wrong. So mm-hmm. I would build on the find find what you not only like but what you love. I really believe that's a, deeply important, and um, because. If you find an area that you love, if you look at a discipline as simply a critical lens in which you bring to the world, um, at least have some passion behind mm-hmm. it. And if that's the way you're going to find out, you're going to develop into being a critical and independent thinker. And that's what you need to survive in a world in which you're probably going to change jobs, you know, a dozen times over the course of your life. So. My own follow-up to this, and it's, it's not from the emailer, is how well do you think our high schools are preparing students uh, at, when you get them? By the time you get them, how well prepared are they to think in terms of, gosh, you know, what do I want to do here? They're probably doing as well as they can be expected to do. I think my 30 years of working with adolescents, uh, you know, teen, teenagers, mm-hmm. is that they're not – real interested in many of them in making commitment. And so they they keep their powder pretty dry in terms of talking to people and being willing to be introspective about these kinds of issues. That's not to say that there aren't lots of, of young people who know from age six that they want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse or a teacher, but many, many of them really struggle with a willingness to be introspective and think about it. And I think in many cases it takes that first year in college away from parents and away from home to mm-hmm. to really come to a decision. I, if I had to look at a concern that we have on our campus, and this is you, you said earlier, uh, Bob, that you're an old man. This I sound like such an old man here. <laughs> um, in that, the skill that I most worry about its degradation over the last, you know, perhaps two decades is the just the basic capacity to write, mm-hmm. write critically, and. Um, you know, I, our, our kids that are coming to us with, you know, they're so media saturated, but at some level, breaking down a problem by writing your way through it is something that I'm not sure that they have a strong facility for anymore. So we, we find ourselves expending enormous amount of resources in writing because it's a, it, you know, it's a mode of inquiry that that I, I worry is. Um, is not celebrated in our our school systems, or 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 perhaps we haven't learned how to teach this these sorts of uh, young people how to write. And so, um, 
you know, critical expression, both both uh, rhetorically and, and and but most importantly, and I and I'm, I'm, there there'll be faculty who won't like this, but most importantly, by writing is something that I I deeply worry about. And I could add into you know, if any of my faculty are listening, uh, scientific literacy is something that. You know, <laughs> there you go. Okay, folks. <laughs> Don't email him. Okay, here's the second part of the same question: Is uh, with rising tuitions, how can students pay for college? I think that that, it, that again varies a lot from from uh, student to student. Um, you know, students of, of modest means, uh, there are a large number of uh, both state and federal programs uh, to help them. I think every institution has some level of need-based aid as well as merit-based aid, um, as well as jobs on campus and jobs in the community and and. Uh, to fill in the gap, there are our student loans, uh, but it is getting harder, and and uh, I think that you're going to see a trend at at moderating increases in tuition as a result mm-hmm. to uh, make sure that we don't price people out of the out of the marketplace. Yeah, I would. Um, you know, we we have similar um, financial models, but different as well. Uh, um, mm-hmm. In that. Both of us, the actual product that we produce, the the the, the totality of the experience that these uh, students uh, have at both ISU and at DePaul, is quite expensive. I mean, these are these are these are um, incredibly expensive enterprises. These students are are moving about um, a campus that is that represents decades and decades of capital investment. Mm-hmm. Faculty are uh, they're you know. They're they're very expensive uh, employees, uh, appropriately enough. But um, we have relied over the years on our endowment and the support of our alumni, essentially to make up the gap between what we think we can charge students and what it actually costs. Mm-hmm. Um, that model is under serious pressure. And if you look at you know the merit funding that we provide, that might be the beginnings of of some pretty significant market corrections. You know we were. Uh, we are, you know, we spend. Uh, I'm sure Dan does the same thing. You're constantly modeling out your budget over multiple years. You know, if if you keep increasing your tuition at four and five percent, or you know, or above inflation, you know, you could look at seventy five thousand dollars a year awfully quick, mm-hmm. and that is an. That's a moment that you have to say to yourself, you know, what's going on here? What's the model? Um, and I, it's going to be a crisis, or it is. It certainly is a crisis right now, and so. What is our investment? What's the nation's mm-hmm. interest in this situation right now? And the interest is high. There are a lot of parents right now who are very glad to hear that that projection is being made because it feels like a reality to a lot of people already. I mean, it, just if you look at higher education over a twenty-five year period, mm-hmm. we have if you, we have we've exceeded the consumer price index right. for every year for multiple years, and I, I don't think that is uh, it's not financially sustainable and it's not culturally sustainable. Yeah. And Mary Catherine's saving for Dylan's education now, so I'm sure she'll be happy to hear that. All right. We have a couple phone calls and we have more emails, so let's go to Valerie on the phone first. Valerie? Hi. I'm a proud parent of a 2009 DePaul graduate who All had right. merit scholarship. All She's right. now a proud Teach for America teacher in Indianapolis, and what a wonderful education she had. Oh, that's terrific. But my question today is for Dr. Bradley, and that is as a public institution – I'm wondering what percentage of your budget comes from the state, how many trustee appointments the governor has, and should it be proportional? Hmm. Uh, have, I'll, uh, before I forget it, proportional to what? To what the state is giving you. Oh, right okay. now it seems like the governor has many more appointments to public institution trustees. Our, than our, okay, let me uh, – oh, our budget is is approximately fifty fifty in terms of tuition and state state funding, but uh, the fifty percent coming from tuition is a rising number, and the fifty percent coming from uh, state appropriation is a dropping number. And to a large measure, over the last twenty years, most of our super inflationary tuition increases could be traced to that that fact that the state appropriation has not kept up with inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as our board, we have nine members on the board. The governor actually appoints all of them, but they base two of them are based on recommendations from our alumni association and one from our student government association. So there are 
six that the governor has a free hand in and and uh, three that he has a great deal of advice as to who who should be there whether uh, and are you happy with that ratio? Well, I'm very happy with my board, and I hope they're all listening. <laughs> um, I think that we have a long history in Indiana of boards of trustees at the public institutions. And I think that history and culture has resulted generally, at Indiana State anyway, in good board members. Uh, that's not always the case. I think in some states they've had a great deal of trouble where – you get, uh, for lack of a better word, political hacks on public higher ed boards because of money to the governor or whatever. That I don't think that that has been the case in Indiana. So I'm I'm quite happy uh, today with how my board has been has been chosen, and and I assume that the culture will make sure that that's preserved in the future. All right, Valerie, thanks a lot for the call. We lost our second caller, so we can go back to your email. Okay. Uh, This is a little change of pace from what we've been discussing, but it begins, The physical plant staff personnel at Indiana State and DePauw have been longtime partners with Indiana University in their efforts to avoid the price peaks of the natural gas market through smart hedging. Are there any new challenges that the administration that uh, Yes, that the administrators at the three campuses are jointly working together on to control costs or to improve the educational services we offer. Yeah, I, the, you know, we are certainly going to keep our eye on uh, energy costs, but um, I, there hasn't been a lot of movement toward this, but I'd be, I'd be curious to see whether we could, and maybe there'd be a public-private divide on this one, but the, the, the cost that actually keeps me up at night is health care costs. Hmm. Um, you know, we provide... Uh, health care coverage for, you know, our faculty and our staff. And though the pressures on, on – the, the pressure that puts on our budget is, is enormous and it, it becomes a, a variable that's hard to predict, hard to manage. And um, if, if I think of any way I'd like to um, move forward – but now, now it would be in some sort of collaboration on that. I mean could we, could we pool our resources in, in, or pool our activities in some other way? But um, I suspect – that that might be a public-private divide because of um, we we I, we we operate in a little bit separate um, healthcare arenas. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that that there would be any uh, legislative barriers to us doing that. But I, I agree that that healthcare costs are enormously dri- that driving our budget. Mm-hmm. Just just like the utilities, you have no choice but to pay them. Uh, we've budgeted a 10 percent increase this year and a 10 percent increase. Next year, and and a, and it's about uh, that comes down to about a two and a half percent equivalent salary increase. So basically, our our employees have given up about a five five percent in their in their paycheck over the next two years because of health insurance costs. Isn't that interesting? We're we're in such uh, the scale of our enterprises are so different, but we have almost the exact same model. We have we have modeled in. We're we're assuming ten percent increases mm-hmm. um, in healthcare costs, and we're trying to find other contingencies. You know, can, can we can we set aside funds? And it is directly impacting our capacity to increase salaries. And and I, and I don't know how to exactly break that particular pattern. But we have we've come to the almost. I hope we haven't just violated some antitrust principle right here <laughs> on the radio, radio. But that's exactly our our, our assumptions. Our guests today are Indiana State University President Daniel Bradley and DePaul University President Brian Casey. If you want to join us, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. Or you can go to our website and email us, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Whenever Indiana University shows up on any kind of a rating scale, it always seems to be on the front page of his paper. (laughs) So I wonder uh, how much attention do you pay to where you rank nationally um, by the various folks who get paid to do those sort of rankings? Is this something that you really pay close attention to? Go ahead. I just – do you want the official answer? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'd like both. Um, We're on the record here. There you go. Um, Yeah. Officially and I think appropriately, you there is much to decry about the U.S. News and World Report rankings. It's it's driven by um, uh, reputational scores. It's, it's still the most heavily weighted factor in the um, algorithm that determines rankings. And there's a there's clearly an incentive for U.S. News to 
change that algorithm year after year. So mm-hmm. there's movement in the rankings. Otherwise, it's not interesting. It's not interesting. You know, it's like, oh look, uh, Princeton's really good Woo-hoo. again. You know, <laughs> um, so there, there, you know, there, there's a little bit of a marketing games going on. So you know, it, it it is decried. It should be decried. But to say that we don't pay attention to it would be full, fully dishonest. Um, mm-hmm. Because we know that the effect this has on our students mm-hmm. um, and recruitment, it, it very, very much so. And you know, you've seen various efforts. You know, um, Forbes has now come out with their own rankings. The Wall Street Journal had come up with its own rankings. There's been movement afoot to, for the for um, institutions themselves to develop their own ranking systems. Um, you know, you you live by them and you die by them. I, I agree with everything that Brian said. I, I think there are some that, that you know, we are, like I said, we're very involved with engagement and experiential education, and, and there are ratings that look at that in particular. And so we're very interested in how we stack up because we we want to do well in that area, and, and we think that that can be measured. Um, so it, it, it depends on the rankings. I, I think the, the more generic or more general the ranking, the less value it has. Mm-hmm. You know, um, our insurance and risk management program, for instance, has been rated very highly. And I, and I think it's, it's a small enough program and in, in terms of a piece of the university that, that it can be compared to, to someplace else. But when you try and compare Indiana State, for instance, we're in the in the national university grouping in U.S. News and World Report. Mm. Well, there is, there is no way I, an institution in rural Indiana is going to be in the top tier of that group. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's um, something you have to, to listen to and pay attention to, but you can't allow it to determine how you operate or where your goals are. All right. We're going to uh, go back to a phone call, and Rich is on the phone. Rich? Hi, good afternoon. Go right ahead. I enjoy the president's uh, comments about the work of the boards of directors and the mm-hmm. governance that those boards provide. I was curious about the relationship between governance by a board and recent, uh, uh, recent events. I guess Senate Finance Committee held some hearings, uh, or maybe it was Higher Education Committee. Uh, what's the relationship between a legislature and a governing board, and how do CEOs work with those two? I guess that one's for me. Certainly not for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I'm hired by the Board of Trustees for Indiana State University, and they are appointed by the governor. Uh, the committee that you're probably talking about is, is the budget committee. Um, it does. I don't report to that committee, but if they call me up and suggest I come and see them, you can bet that I'm going to be in the car. Uh, they control 50% of our budget and basically all of the capital um, construction on the campus. So their views are very important to us. Um, they remind us that, that we are a publicly funded institution and need to keep the, the needs of the state and the citizens of the state high on our uh, agenda. So... Um, while it's somewhat sometimes uncomfortable to be called into those meetings, it's uh, it's a necessary part of the process, and uh, I'm happy for the opportunity to present our positions. All right, Rich. Thanks a lot for the call. We do appreciate okay. it. All right, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. I want to ask about uh, – ask you, uh, Dan, about Indiana State and – teacher education mm-hmm. because, of course, that's got a long history uh, many decades ago as, as sort of a teacher's – as a teacher's college. And um, as I understand it, you've done some refurbishing of, of one of the halls and have moved the School of Education. We did. The School of Education moved into a, a new home uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's kind of a, a real uh, nostalgic event. The building that they've moved into was built in 1935 as our laboratory school and was known as University High School for for 60 years. Uh, so we did a with the with the funding from the state did a total remodel of this building and and really modernized it so we can really meet the needs of students today, 
but it really shows the character of buildings built in the 1930s. So it's, it was a great event for the College of Education. Does this signal any kind of a uh, renewed emphasis in teacher training? No, I don't think it I, – I hope not. You're going to make a run on Ball State? <laughs> <laughs> we, we think Ball State's running after us. <laughs> um, I think teacher education has been, has been a key program at Indiana State starting in 1865 and will be in 2065. Um, we've got a great programs in education. Uh, we think that pedagogy matters. And we think we do a very good job at both uh, preparing teachers and administrators for our public schools. All right. Um, you want to address the uh, some of the changes that are um, being proposed about pedagogy versus well, well, uh, just in general? Uh-huh. I, I would say, you know, I'm a scientist and an engineer, and I went through a long period of my career where I felt that that content was the only thing that mattered, <laughs> um, and I would say that particularly in the last 10 years or so, I've come to the clear realization that I was very wrong, uh, that content is important, but if you don't have the pedagogical skills uh, to teach and to manage your classroom, your content is not going to matter at all because you're not going to get a chance to present it. Mm -hmm. So while I uh, applaud efforts to improve the success rate of of, of our students in public schools and to improve graduation rates. Um, we need to spend a lot more time looking at other things than the content of the, the teachers. Maybe we should look at the school board structures and the, the uh, superintendents and the principals and those kinds of things. All right. All right. We've had another email that's come in. Uh, has either university set specific timelines and targets for reducing their carbon footprint? And if so, have you started budgeting for the facility upgrades that will be required? I can. Uh, we, we just passed a major anniversary on that. Um, on September 15th of last year, I signed the president's campus climate commitment. Um, and we had exactly one year to, to measure our carbon footprint. That's the first step that you mm-hmm. have to do. And, and um, uh, it was due at... Five o'clock on September fifteenth of this year, and at four o'clock we actually sent the email off. But uh, it was interesting that the 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 effort actually to understand and measure um, was a bit of a cultural shift because um, you know we we're not set up to actually make these measurements. But but now the next step that we have to do is we have to start um, taking steps to not increase our carbon footprint. We're about to engage a campus planning firm. Um, because the campus has has, an, has never developed a campus plan or a campus town plan, so we specifically hired a firm that was was quite good at uh, developing sustainability efforts. And you know, I find myself uh, spending time thinking about chillers and you know, <laughs> and, and, and roofing systems. Yeah. I never knew roofs were systems, but they're systems now in which you <laughs> capture rainwater. Um, no, we're looking forward to it, and actually. Um, you know what we're doing is we're actually catching up to our students' interest. Our, we have a we have a cadre of students. Cadre. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a group of students who are uh, so wound up about this, and it's the question. It's the question of our time, mm-hmm. and and um, so not only are we, we trying to address this institutionally as an operation, but it's infusing so many parts of our curriculum right now, and the students just. They're just bringing this energy to it. And we're, I said we're just – we're sprinting to catch up with them right now. We did have Carol Steele on with us a few uh, – several weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's leading the effort yeah. at DePaul. Right? Yeah, that's great. I think we, we signed the same agreement. Uh, we're probably uh, one of the delinquents in that we haven't filed our report yet as far as I know. But we are – we're in the process of, of preparing it. I think it's – you know, speaking practically, it's going to be very, very difficult for higher ed to – do a lot um, in terms of changing itself without doing a lot of efforts in changing the world or changing Indiana where we get something over something close to 90 percent of our energy, for mm-hmm. instance, from coal. Um, but I, our campus is very interested. Uh, we're working on it. Um, but it is a, a matter of, of what, you, what you can do for instance, until we have alternatives to coal-generated coal, coal, coal generated electricity and 
gasoline-powered cars. Mm-hmm. Can you, will, will you be able to measure in any way? I mean, the efforts that you've been making um, to change the campus and to try to engage students and keep them from driving home every weekend and all those <laughs> mm-hmm. things, is there any way to measure um, how those things are doing and whether, you know, you're, you're making success environmentally by having more students uh, not driving away every weekend and, and maybe not even driving outside of your campus area to other parts of Terre Haute? I, I think we can measure them. I mean, the first the first real data point we'll be looking at is what percentage of this year's freshman class return next fall. Now, we're in the process of developing intermediate measures so that, that we don't uh, have to wait a whole year. Um, but that we will be looking at all the kinds of things, you know, what kind of participation levels do we have in activities, uh, what kinds of of uh, things are see people seeing in the classroom. Mm-hmm. But w- we have to come up with more measures and ones that are more timely. Uh, I've told our residence life people that, you know, really in the first month, they are the key because they're the ones that see the students every single day, multiple times a day, and they've got to be the canaries telling us there's a problem mm-hmm. in that first month, which is really the key to student success, the first month and ultimately the first semester. If students don't do well their first semester, very bad sign for the mm-hmm. future. What, what about enrollment numbers for each of your institutions? Are they, are they going up? We're up very modestly. Um, we've, we've been on, we were on a very uh, slow or, or shallow ramp down for a number of years, and, and we took a bump up. Uh, we'd like to grow some, um, but uh, not dramatically. We had um, an unbelievably unusual season last uh, admission cycle because, you know, I'm, and I'm sure Dan does the same. You, know, you, know, you hire all these consultants who tell you exactly how every 17-year-old is going to behave and what, you, what, what emails you send to them to make them change their behaviors. But, you know, we, we had every prediction had that we, that we, would, we would see reductions in our enrollments. We, we ended up seeing this explosion in our first-year class. It was the largest first-year class we've had in a long time, completely unpredicted. And that's putting significant pressure on, on our classroom experience. So, you know, who knows? I, you know, it's, it's, it's such an inexact science. So we live and die by it, but and here we are. Mm-hmm. I know Indiana University had more students on campus this year than ever, even though the freshman class was down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the retention issue that mm-hmm. you were talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, they can, they can uh, try to predict how many freshmen they're going to have, but then – when all these students, they've succeeded and all these students stay, they, they just well. grow. All right. We are out of time. So I, I took the last 15 seconds for myself. I'm sorry. About that. <laughs> it's okay. I want to thank our guests today, Indiana State University President Daniel Bradley and DePaul University President Brian Casey. We certainly hope you'll both come back. That would be great. Mm, be happy to do that. All right. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.